become misfortune. <laughs> I'm watching you. Hey guys, welcome to episode 26 of Macabre Misfortunes. What's up, y'all? So Tracy, tonight's story was a huge tragedy, very close to home. Yes. It led to some major changes across the country in uh, fire safety standards and laws. The Beverly Hills Supper Club fire was the seventh deadliest nightclub fire in history. It took place over Memorial Day weekend in 1977. So we're going to get into more details of the actual fire itself as we go, but let's start with uh, some history on the club itself. The Beverly Hills Supper Club, for those that are unfamiliar with the area, was right across the river from Cincinnati in uh, northern Kentucky. It's in the city of Southgate, which isn't too far from Bobby Mackey's if anybody's been out that way. The club was a big deal back then. They had top-notch entertainment from Vegas, Nashville, New York, Hollywood, and even a bunch of other entertainment hubs across America. Its heyday was in the mid to late 1970s, but even before it was the Beverly Hills Supper Club, it was a very popular night spot and illegal gambling house going all the way back to 1926. Wow, I do remember that. I was just starting high school when that fire happened. It's very traumatic on young people to see, well, on anybody for that fact, to see how horrible it was. Dean Martin was a blackjack dealer at the club at one point in his mm -hmm. life. It had eventually closed down and was reopened in 1971 under the management who turned it into the Beverly Hills Supper Club. The club didn't just have top-notch talent. They also had high-dollar and big-name clients. From 1970 to 1976, several additions were built onto the original structure. This would be an issue. As yep. you can imagine. The building overall was roughly a square shape, nothing special, two-story complex. What's important here is that the items and materials that were used in this construction. Though the building's frame and ceiling tiles were classified as non-combustible, the Beverly Hills Supper Club was loaded with wooden building materials. This included the floor joist and the framing in the interior hallways. It was also decorated throughout with highly flammable carpeting and wood wall paneling. Event rooms also had wooden tables and chairs and supports, as well as tablecloths, curtains, and other combustible materials. You would think that a place that has high people like Dean Martin or whatever that come in there, they wouldn't have paneling. <laughs> but I guess that was... Well, paneling in the 70s was, was it, that yeah. Was, you know, that was the... It just sounds funny hearing that, though. The building did not have any fire suppression sprinkler systems installed. And at the time, there were... I, I mean, it, it sounds really bad, but in the 70s before this mm -hmm. and other things like that... It wouldn't require it in, like, nightclubs. Yeah. So, and I mean, back then, it was, you know, you could smoke anywhere, too. Yep. Yeah. 
It also didn't have an alarm or smoke detectors. Terrible. Terrible, terrible. Another big problem was that the building's design, which was, you know, most of the event rooms and stuff, the doors didn't lead to outside anywhere. They just led into hallways. Mm-hmm. So there, you were in an event room. You really had no, no way, way to, to get, get out, out. Right. other than going into a hallway. Most of these hallways were very narrow, which didn't help matters. All right. So let's get into the actual night of the fire. Saturday, May 28th, 1977. The club was opened and it was operating beyond capacity. This was primarily because of the cabaret room. The show that they put in there was super popular. Mm-hmm. And it was even extra popular tonight. They believed that there were approximately 3,000 people inside the Beverly Hills Supper Club the night that the fire started. Here's a fun fact. Who do you think the act was that night that was so popular in the Beverly Hills Supper Club cabaret room? You know, I feel like I know it, but I tell you, I cannot remember. uh, Oh, wait a minute. Uh, I do know. Uh, guy with the blonde hair. Uh, the guy with the blonde. No, hair. what's his name? Uh, Davidson. Uh, John Davidson. Davidson. Yeah, yeah. That's good. I would have never. I had no clue who yeah. until doing this. Based on the number of exits, the cabaret room was said to be able to hold no more than six hundred people, according to fire. Oh my standards. goodness! Wow. On this night, it's estimated that there were between nine hundred to thirteen hundred in that room alone. Daggone. People were seated on ramps and in the aisles. In the other parts of the club, patrons were were eating gourmet meals because mm-hmm. they had restaurants and stuff in there. As we said, the estimated amount of people and there were 3,000 people in the club fire code said max was 1,500 near the south exit to uh, right over by the main bar this was at the opposite end of the cabaret club was a wedding reception that was being hosted um, and that ended right around 8.30 p.m. when the reception ended Mm -hmm. near the building's main entrance was the zebra room now some of the guests in that room started to complain that the room was getting excessively hot. And some said that they had heard some loud explosions from beneath the floor. Oh. So the group left the zebra room even before their allotted time was up. Mm-hmm. They're just uncomfortable. The zebra room remained empty until 8.59. That's when an employee smelled smoke and he opened the door and confirmed the presence of smoke. The employee then asked a colleague to call the fire department, and then she and some other employees grabbed fire extinguishers, and they began trying to hold the fire at bay. They had no way of knowing this at the time, but when the employees opened the door to the zebra room, they made the situation worse. They fanned the flames, so to speak. At that point, the fire was a smoldering flame in the room's drop ceiling. Once that door was opened, it gave the fire enough oxygen to flash over and quickly spread. It was clear that the fire extinguishers were pretty much useless against this fast-glowing, growing blaze that they had. The fire department was alerted at 9.01, and they arrived on the scene at 9.05. There was visible smoke coming from the building as the firefighters arrived outside. The smoke soon started to flow from the zebra room and drafted down the hallway towards 
the banquet room. And the employees started telling guests and, and um, uh, any employees that were around that they needed to evacuate the building. But without any alarm, guests who were at the more isolated rooms in the building had no clue of the impending danger. Wow. They had to wait for an employee to actually walk the length of the building to inform them that there was a fire so they could get out. Fire investigators estimated that it only took between two to five minutes for the fire to reach the cabaret room and all of those occupants that were watching John Davidson. The fire was reaching the room about the same time that the guests were being warned Mm. there was a fire. Busboy Walter Bailey arrived in the cabaret room and he interrupted the show at 9.06, screaming to evacuate the room immediately. Again, they estimate that there was about a thousand people in this room, all trying to get out of just a few exits, three exits to be exact. That's all they had was three? Yes, three doors. Oh, Lord. Which is how they base how many people are allowed in a room yeah. is how many doors they have. Well, which yeah. That's why there was only 600 allowed because there was only three, three doors. So anyway, they, they're trying to get out these two, these few exits. The fire spread across the building. It also spread upwards, engulfing the spiral staircases. That would have been the best way for people to exit from the upstairs. Around 9, 10 p.m., the power went out in the entire building, so no lights. The people were really starting to panic at this time. Those who were, were actually calmly trying to make their way to the exit now were pushing and shoving others. The situation was made worse when two of the three exits were blocked by fire. Oh. Now you only got one exit to get out of. That now meant that every one of those thousand people were trying to funnel through one exit. Employees outside the exits tried their best to pull guests out, but the crush of the bodies of all those that were behind pushing upon those in the front became so solid that no amount of strength could free people. They were giant. It was just like a giant, you know, ball of people all together. Many of those who survived the the actual crush part of it did make it out into the hallway, but then they got lost trying to find the other exits. There was no lights. Then, So when you go into a building now and you've got the exits that are lit up, Mm Mm-hmm. And then the lights stay on no matter what. And you have the little fire lights that no matter what, the, the battery powered that are on. Yeah. This is the reason that, that you see that, those that we see today. those today. Because you, it makes sense that you would lose power mm-hmm. in a building with a fire like that. The building's confusing design often led to a, sets of doors opening into a bar area that funneled uh, frantic guests straight into dead ends. Just a very weird setup, the way this was built. Mm. And that's when it goes back to the beginning when I said that when it was built, you know, some of what they did just made it absolutely horrible for a situation like this. Those poor people. I cannot even imagine. This is a quote that came from a gentleman by the name of uh, Bruce Rath. He was from the Fort Thomas Volunteer Fire Department at the time. He said, when I got to the inside door, which is about 30 feet inside the building, I saw these big double doors. People were stacked like cordwood. They were clear up to the top. They just kept diving out onto each other, trying to get out. I looked over the pile. It wasn't dead people. 
they were dead and alive all in the same pile. And I went in and I just started to grab them two at a time and pull off the stack and drag them outside. At 11.30 p.m., the fire department, assuming that the building's roof would soon collapse, ordered all firefighters to evacuate the building. At approximately midnight, the roof did collapse. The fire was so big that the flames were not under control until 2 a.m. Parts of the building still burned for another two days. By the early morning of May 29th, 134 bodies had been removed from the building. They were laid out on the hillside surrounding the building. They were then taken to a makeshift morgue at Fort Thomas Armory. By June 1st, 28 more bodies had been discovered. Some died after the fact. When all was said and done, 165 died. 200 were injured. I'm surprised at that number. Actually, I figured it'd be a lot more. The investigation showed overcrowding, inadequate fire exits, faulty wiring. In fact, the governor, Julian Carroll at the time, he called the club's wiring an electrician's nightmare. And that's what people believe actually started the fire was the electrical wiring. Mm-hmm. There, I will say there were there is talks in later years that it was possible arson. No but kidding. I don't think it was because it started in the ceiling. You don't really have arson start in the ceiling. Mm-hmm. I, they think it was faulty wiring. There was also a lack of firewalls, poor construction practice. Again, the way things were shaped and mm-hmm. let out. Extreme safety code violations and poor oversight by regulatory authorities. The Cincinnati Inquirer said that the local fire department knew about all this, but they didn't have the authority to force the corrections. What? They probably didn't. I mean, they can report it. They can go in and do the the search and and report the codes. But it's just like when we did the story of the... um, uh, amusement park that mm-hmm. castle that that burnt down yeah i mean there was loopholes all over the place to get around the, right. the fire problems right. there was a lawsuit filed as you would probably imagine this was actually the first lawsuit to use the concept of enterprise liability and one of the very first disaster suits to bring a uh, class action lawsuit so that was a horrible, horrible thing for sure. Hey, yeah. Freddie. So, anyways, I didn't do a uh, a fact uh, for this one. This one was kind of, I don't know. I didn't think it really warranted trying to do another something on this one. It's such a bad story and mm-hmm. such a horrible outcome. Yeah, kinda, it sure was. And I, I know all these stories are. They but, are all horrible for sure. But that's it's just it's just a shame that something that could have been prevented. And all those people lost their lives. That's well, just... it, it, but once again, a lot of times out of negatives come positive. That's true. That's and, true. And, you know, this did change a lot in the fire safety codes. This and the uh, MGM fire. Mm-hmm. Those are the two that really have put fire safety standards. I mean, you rarely hear of a, I mean, you'll hear of a, a, a house fire or something, but you rarely hear of a, a big time club or something like that burning down anymore. And a lot of that is because... The fires still sometimes happen, but they don't go out so out of control so quick yeah, they because don't get to of that reasons level. like that. So, hmm. anyways, 
Very, very memorable thing for sure. Especially so close to home. Yeah, I mean, it's an hour from us. Right yeah, now. well, hell, it wasn't even an hour from where yeah, I used not to from live. You, it was yeah. 15 minutes. Yeah. So. Terrible. All right, guys, that wraps it up for today. Thank you so much. We appreciate you. Bye, guys. We love you.